Good morning. I'm Harry. I'm one of the deacons here at the church. Um, I have the uh, honor and privilege to read the, uh, the scripture for today. The scripture is from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. So I think it's going to be up on the screens. Um, if you guys would stand uh, for the reading of the word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather be ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleans, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual, sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Thank you, guys. You can sit down. Good morning. It's good to be with you. I know that there is an LSU game on at 2 p.m., so I will try my best to get you out by 1.30. I'll try my best. I cannot promise anything. Um, uh, as Jim said, we have made our way to um, some encouraging texts in the book of 1 Corinthians. It is certainly a game uh, changer here. Um, as I've said with other texts before, you know, uh, if you skip throughout the Bible and preaching, you don't cover 1 Corinthians 5. You wouldn't want to. Um, but fortunately for Crosspoint, we preach through books of the Bible, and so we don't get to pick and choose buffet style what we what we like and don't like and so I pray that first Corinthians 5 would be an encouragement for all of us and what we are seeking to do here at cross point and being faithful to God's word and so uh, if you remember last week Paul ended his section for uh, 4 14 through 21 by ending how basically asking a question how do you want me to come to you he said how do you wish for me to come to you do you want me to come with a rod of rebuke and, and, uh, and, and kind of strictness, or do you want me to come with gentleness, a gentle and loving spirit? It's your choice, Corinthians. 
But if the Corinthians, if they're continuing to do what Paul addresses here in 1 Corinthians 5, what we just read, then it is going to be a matter of fact that Paul is going to come with a metaphorical rod in his hand to meet the Corinthians. Because what Paul is addressing here is that there has uh, become, he's been made aware that there is heinous sin in the life of Corinth. A sin that has gone unaddressed in their church body. And this sin has scandalized the church in the eyes of the world. It has disrupted their fellowship with each other. And it has disrepute, brought disrepute on the name of Jesus Christ. And so, in light of that, Paul is giving a, a rebuke and exhortation to, that a cleansing is required in the church of Corinth. There's a cleansing required. Because the church's witness and the church's holiness is at stake here. And what we're talking about here is the title of the sermon is what we call church discipline. It's actually a thing that we practice here and have practiced here at Cross Point Baptist Church. And ultimately, I hope what we see from these 13 verses about church discipline, how the church is to handle egregious, rebellious, unrepentant sin, is this. Is that 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13 is about, it's about the purpose of church discipline and it's to maintain the church's witness and holiness with the hope of the sinner's repentance and restoration. Let me say that one more time. The church, the purpose of church discipline is to maintain the church's witness and holiness with the goal of the sinner repenting and being restored back to the body of Christ. Let me pray for us. God, by my own power, by any of our own power, we can do nothing. And so, God, right now, as we even hear your word, we need the Spirit's illumination so that we can see, that we can understand, that we can believe, and that we can obey. God, work in us right now as we open up your word and seek to obey what you have said. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What we're ultimately going to find out today is there's one question in this text. There's one question, three points. And ultimately, the question is this, is how should we deal with with unrepentant, egregious sin in our congregation? Cross point, that's, that's, that's the question for you. How should we deal with unrepentant, egregious sin in the body? And Paul's going to outline that for us. Point number one is this. The problem, the plan, and the purpose of church discipline. The problem, the plan, and the purpose of church discipline. And what we're going to learn is the church, us, cross point, we cannot be apathetic, complacent, or inactive towards sin in our body, in the church, in our midst. Many of you may have a high pain tolerance. I was not built with that, uh, that skill. Uh, a good pinch will do me in. A good tickle uh, will, will put me on the ground. And so I have a very low threshold for pain, very low. And, uh, and so many of you, you know, if you know what it, pain tolerance is, it's, you know, the maximum level of pain that you can tolerate as a human being. And so uh, many of you may have different ones. Well, uh, here in Corinth, we're not talking about a uh, maximum level pain tolerance. We're talking about a sin tolerance. What are they tolerating here at Corinth? And what Paul's going to say is the church in Corinth has a very high sin tolerance, which is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. The church in Corinth has tolerated egregious, unrepentant sin. And so this is what Paul is aiming his rebuke at here in the 13 verses, is you have tolerated way too much as a body, as the body of Christ. Look at what he says in the verse, verse 1 of chapter 5. 
It's actually been reported. So what we find out is this. Word has gotten around town. It's gotten back to me so far. People have come and told me what's going on in the congregation there at Corinth. And this is not a good report. Your reputation around town is not a good one. Word has gotten around town, and it's not uh, a good look for you. And so the church in Corinth has what it seems to be has become known for this sin that has taken place in their body that has gone unaddressed. People have heard about it. People know about it. It's gotten around town. And so he's saying, this is egregious. This is terrible, this sin that you have tolerated in your body. It's so egregious, so rebellious, in fact, so bad that even pagans blush at it. That's what he's saying. He says, okay, there is sexual immorality among you And it's of a kind that's not even tolerated among unbelievers. It's not just that it's egregious and rebellious and heinous in the eyes of God. It's even crazy in the eyes of an unregenerate, unbelieving person. They're even blushing at that fact. Oh, golly, I wouldn't even act like that. When the world is saying, man, that's that's out of line. That's pretty crazy for a church, right? When the world's saying you aren't in line. But it's outrageous, not just in God's eyes, but it's outrageous in the unbelieving, unbeliever's eyes. And it's outrageous in God's eyes because of this. Clearly, uh, Corinth, they, they should know God's word. And this, was, this kind of relationship that's outlined here, this kind of ancestral, he's in a sexually immoral relationship with his, not his mother, but it seems to be his stepmother, the wife that his father has taken. And so this re- kind of relationship was outlined particularly in the law, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, that this is not how relationships should work and will work in among God's people. So it's not only crazy and heinous in the eyes of the unregenerate, unbelieving person, it's crazy and heinous in the eyes of God because it's a direct disregard for God's word and what he has outlined and how marriages and relationships are supposed to, supposed to function. So it's heinous in their eyes. But what Paul does with just outlining the problem, hey, this is, this is your sin, and it's, it's such a heinous sin that even unbelievers think it's crazy. And he doesn't scold the man. That's what's interesting here. He doesn't specifically scold the man for it. Who does he scold? He scolds the church. You know why? Because they've tolerated it. They've allowed it to occur. They've been fine with it. He scolds them because they've tolerated it, and they don't seem to be bothered by the man's sin. Because they haven't done anything about it. And for whatever reason, it says, you know, this man has taken his stepmother, and you are arrogant. You are arrogant. He's calling them out on their pride because either they're, they're arrogant and that they're applauding this man's sin. You know, hey, you know, it's a great way to use your liberty. Great, great job. Or they've just become complacent and They've been focused on other things. Well, look at the worldly wisdom that we have. Look at this, what we have. Look, look at how we're doing here. All that is nothing if you are allowing sin to exist in your midst and to ruin your witness. It doesn't matter what you have, what worldly wisdom you have. And so Paul is scolding Corinth because they've just disregarded this sin and become complacent with it. With it. When actually what they should be doing, you shouldn't be arrogant, you should be mourning over this person's sin and how you've tolerated it and this is the pattern in the old testament if you remember that we you know we just covered daniel daniel chapter 9 is that daniel is doing a confession of sin and he's acknowledging the sin of israel and how they rebelled rebelled against god and been exiled we see that from ezra we see that from nehemiah in their prayers is that they're mourning the sin of israel 
They're mourning what they've done and the heinousness uh, of crimes that they have committed against their God. And so this is Paul was saying, you shouldn't be tolerating this. You should be mourning over sin. You should be mourning over this person and what they've done. Their unrepentant lifestyle. And so he says, not just with mourning, but you need to take immediate action with this. You cannot allow this to go unaddressed. And so if you look in 13 verses, he gives all these kind of imperatives to say what to do with it. So if you look here, he says, remove it from among you. In verse 5, he says, deliver this man to Satan. In verse 7, cleanse out. In verse uh, 11, don't associate, don't even eat with. Verse 12, purge. Verse 13, actually, purge. So he's giving all these imperatives to say, here's how you should respond to the sin that is in your midst. Is that you should be mourning over the sin. It should really, really break your heart, and then you have to do something about it. You have to take action. You cannot be inactive towards this. Patrick Schreiner says it really well. He says, they must rid their community of overt, public, and rebellious immoralities. So remove it. Well, Paul says, okay, now that you know that you're to remove this, how are you to do this? And he says that I'm going to be with you. I'm absent there, but I'm with you in spirit and, 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 and that you have the power and the presence of Jesus with you. And so that when you assemble, when you get together, remove this from you. So this is not like a kangaroo court where like, hey, that guy's in sin over there. Pattern sin. Let's just, I'm, I'm going to take the authority on me and kick him out myself. This isn't like the Salem witch trials where everybody's a witch and you just, you know, you, you get rid of everybody who's got any accusation. This isn't kangaroo court style. This is when the body of Christ gets together in the power with the presence of the Spirit indwelling in us by the authority of Jesus. We decide together and say, this is something that we cannot tolerate and we must remove. We do this as a body. We do this together. And what do we do? Is that when we gather... We remove unheinous, unrepentant sinners. He says this, he says it in very, very heavy terms, is that when you are together with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus with you, you deliver this man to Satan. That is heavy terms. What does that mean? What does that even mean, deliver him to Satan? Well, what I think that means is, is that you are delivering this person in their egregious, unrepentant, rebellious sin into the domain of darkness, into Satan's world under his authority. Is that, as we know from Ephesians 2, as we know from 2 Corinthians 4 4, is that there is a God of this world, that Satan has a realm and a dom- domain. Though it is under God's ultimate rule and domain, is that Satan has his own rule and domain. And so the church, when they get together to remove a person, they, they are sending him out into outside of God's own protection, outside of God's refuge, into the schemes and activities and devices of Satan, into his realm and domain of authority. Is that we're ultimately releasing and letting loose someone to their own passions. It makes me think about the prodigal son, if you remember that story. Is that the prodigal son just wanted, he just wanted what he wanted. He wanted to fulfill his passions. He wanted to satisfy his desires. And what does the father do? He gives it to him. He says, if you want it that bad, here, take it. You go. What happens? He fills himself with everything he can get his hands on. It reminds me of what Romans 1 says, is that when sin meets this threshold, what does God do? God gives them over. 
to their sin. And so that when we remove somebody, when we're saying that we're going to hand them over to Satan, it's we're removing them out of our body, and we're giving them over to Satan in his realm to my domain to do what their desires and passions want to do that are not in line with the gospel. Paul Alexander says it really well. In other words, send the man into the world he seems to love so much that he would become sick of sin, repent, and be saved from hell when Jesus returns. And so that's what we do when we remove somebody from our membership. We hand them over to Satan, over to the world. But when we do that, we're saying something. We're communicating something. Is that we're saying as a body of Christ that we cannot confidently affirm this person's salvation. Is that the lifestyle in which they are living is so incongruent with the gospel of Jesus Christ that we proclaim that we can't, as a church body, affirm confidently anymore that they are actually saved because their life is so incongruent with the gospel. That's what we're saying when we do church discipline, when we remove somebody from the body of Christ. That's what we do. We can't affirm their salvation. But Paul gives the purpose here. Here, What's the purpose of removing this person? What's the purpose of handing him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? It's so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We don't do church discipline purely out of punishment. We don't do it purely out of hatred. We don't do it purely out of malice or because we're mean or because we're harsh. We do it because we love the sinner and we want to see the sinner repent and be restored. That's why we do church discipline. Is that it's not to punish, it's not to humiliate. It's discipline for the purpose of repentance with the hopes of restoration back into the body of Christ. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy. If you remember 1 Timothy 1 when he's dealing with Hymenaeus and Alexander, he gives them over to Satan as well. And the purpose that he gives them over to Satan is this. 1 Timothy 1:20 among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The purpose in which Paul is saying, I'm handing them over to Satan into Satan's realm and domain, is that that they may learn by being handed over to stop their pattern of unrepentant sin. There's purpose in church discipline. It's not to punish, it's not to embarrass It's not to humiliate, it's not to be mean, it's not to be harsh. It's because our purpose is we love the sinner and we want to see the sinner repent and be restored back to the body of Christ. That is our goal. Our hope is that the unrepentant sinner would be made aware of their error, seek repentance, and be restored back into the local church. We we hope that when we enact church discipline, we hope it's like a wake-up call for them. That's what our goal is. So when we enact church discipline, I hope it's like a wake-up call or, or an alarm clock at 4 a.m. You know one of those alarm clocks when you, you don't expect it to go off? And you're like, oh, like one of those? That's, that's the goal. That's the hope that in enacting church discipline, it wakes them up. The seriousness of church discipline wakes them up and they says, what have I done? What have I done? I've sinned against God. I've sinned against the community of believers. I need to repent. I hope it's like jumping into a cold pool. You ever done that? I mean, know some of you, and you just one of those. That's that's the goal in church discipline. It's a love for the sinner that one day, by enacting church discipline, they may wake up and come to their senses and see their sin and repent and come back to Christ. 
That's our goal. Thomas Schreiner says it well. It is a shock treatment designed to provoke those who are rebellious to return to the Lord. A shock treatment. And just as the prodigal son, the beauty of that story is this. What happened to the prodigal son? He realized that everything that he could buy in this world could never satisfy any of the desires that he had. And he came back home. Is that ultimately that's our goal in church discipline. Is that we would, we would discipline them, remove them from the congregation, can't them not affirm their salvation confidently anymore. And that they would wake up to their senses and come and be restored back to the body. What a day. But as the church, we must think about a couple things, Cross Point. If this is what Paul was telling us to do, we must think about a couple of things. Is that, does the church, our church's sin patterns, do they look heinous to the world? Does our sin within our body look heinous to the world? Where just as what Paul, what Paul is calling Corinthian, the Corinthians out for is that even the pagans, the unbelievers, what they see you doing is heinous to them. It is sickening to them. Consider that, cross point. Is how we live, how we hold ourselves. Is it, does it look heinous to the unbelieving world? Because I think the reason why maybe, maybe it has, maybe not here, but maybe somewhere else, but definitely could be here, is that when this happens, it's because we've become apathetic and inactive towards sin. And that's not just corporately, that's individually. Is that we so oftentimes become inactive and apathetic, complacent towards our own sin personally and towards other sin in, in, the corpor- in, in, in the body, in the congregation, and we think, no big deal. Oh, it's not, that's not a big sin. It's not, it's not really that bad. You know? We become apathetic towards sin. And Paul is warning us here, do not, do not, do not become apathetic towards sin. As we've quoted here many times, be killing sin or sin will be killing you, as John Owen said. And what we must do is that if we're going to become aware of sin, we have to see that we have to church discipline if we are going to protect the witness of the church. We must. Because apathy and inactivity towards individual sin, corporate sin, is going to ruin the reputation of the church in the unbeliever's eyes. It will. Because when we enact church discipline, here's what it says to the world. We take sin seriously. That's what it says to the world. When we enact church discipline, we're saying we take sin seriously. And here's the problem, is that sometimes the world takes sin seriously, more seriously than the church does. That's what's happening here. The world, the unbelievers, they're taking sin more seriously than the actual church. And it should never be so, Crosspoint, that the world takes sin more seriously than the church of Jesus Christ. It should never be that case. And so when we enact church discipline, we are communicating to one another and to the world. We take sin very seriously. It is not a small thing. We must. We must do this. And that we have been given the responsibility as the church. We've been given the authority by Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, and the responsibility from Jesus Christ to remove sin from our midst. It is our responsibility corporately together as a body of Christ. It's our responsibility. And it means something. It has effects on us when we don't do these things. Richard Hayes says it well. All in Christ's church are bound together closely, responsible for one another, and profoundly affected 
by one another's actions. Sins in the community of faith, sin in the congregation, you may not think it has effect on you, you may not think it's your responsibility, but it does have effects on you, and it is our responsibility. We have a corporate responsibility. We cannot take this position of, it's none of my business. I, I'm going to stay, I, it's none of my, that, what they do, that's none of their, that's none of my business. That's their business. I don't, I don't get in that. I don't, I don't get in that. People don't get in my business. I don't get in their business. And we all good. That is not what Paul's saying here. Is that if a person acknowledges Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and is part and member in, as a member of a local church, then if they are in egregious, unrepentant sin, it is your business. It is our business. It is the church's business. They name the name of Christ. It is our business. We cannot take this approach of, let's just all come together individually. Let's, let's not get into each other's lives. Let's not ask questions. Let's not talk. It's none of our business. It is. It is. It is our business. And Jesus has, and we don't have to question, how do, how do we do this? Jesus has given us the answer in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Okay, you, you might think, okay, we need to do this. We need to enact church discipline. We need to practice this. How do we do it? Man, Jesus gives us the operations manual to this thing in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. I will go ahead and write that down. Is that if there is someone who sins against you, you go to them and you talk to them about that. If they receive it well, praise the Lord. Restoration, reconciliation happen. If they don't, then you go get two other people. Two, two other people. So there's evidence of two or three witnesses. If they respond there with, with repentance, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for reconciliation and repentance. If they don't, you bring it to the church. If they don't respond to that to the church, then you remove them. Jesus is very clear about this. And he gives us the authority and responsibility to do so. But out of all this, out of all, all our, you know, as we talk about church discipline, what we cannot miss is this is that our goal in church discipline in removing unrepentant sin from our midst is that we are seeking the good of the sinner. We're not being mean. We're not being harsh. We don't hate this person. They're not the most unpopular person here, and we just want to get them out of our church. It's because we love them. This is why we do these things. Is that discipline is done out of a love and for a good of the sinner. We want to see the person repent and be restored. It's the goal. We must do it out of love. We cannot do it out of anger. We cannot do it out of malice. We cannot do it out of, out of uh, harshness. It's out of love for the sinner. So if church discipline is good for the sinner, how is it good for the church? If church discipline is good for the sinner that we are doing this so that we can see them hopefully repent and be restored back to the body of Christ, then how is it good for us corporately together? How is it good for the church? Well, this is point number two. The con corporate contagiousness of sin. The purpose of church discipline is also to protect the church's holiness because sin is contagious. It's contagious. I was, uh, I was looking up, again, as you all know, when I have a, just a random thought in my mind, I go Google it. And uh, I always wanted to know, why do people yawn when you see somebody else yawn? Why is it? And let me just tell you, I didn't find the answer. Uh, 
I feel like, you know, me and the medical community didn't come to a conclusion on that. Um, you know, some were saying it's personality. You know, it, it, can you, if you don't yawn when you see somebody else yawn, like you have an empathy problem. And uh, so there's lots of reasons. They, they, to my knowledge, they cannot figure out a reason why people yawn when you see other people yawn. And, uh, but you know, you know what I'm talking about because if I started yawning up here, I'd go ahead and I'd see, you know, I'd see everybody in here at some point. And you don't even know where you're yawning. You're like, I got a good night's sleep last night. Why am I yawning? Because you saw, saw me yawn. I'm just trying to see if I see anybody. But it is contagious, right? It's contagious. Everybody starts doing it, and you're like, golly, why am I yawning? Even talking about yawning makes me yawn, right? Well, even more so than yawning, sin is just as contagious and just as contaminating. As we all know the old, old adage, one bad apple spoils the bunch. Is that the purpose of church discipline, what we're looking at here in verses 6 through 8, is that it's not just for the good of the sinner, it's for the good of the church. It protects the church's holiness. And the way in which Paul describes this is a beautiful way in verses 6 through 8 to talk about how church discipline protects the church's holiness. Is that he draws back on Exodus and the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. How they were to remove the leaven because it, can, it has a way of, in which getting into everything. And that they were to do this out of response for what God had done. They were to continue to celebrate this festival of unleavened bread throughout the centuries to remind themselves of what God had done to save them, not just particularly into the Exodus, but when he saved them from the death angel. If you remember that story, is that they were to take the blood of a, of a goat, of a lamb, and put the blood on their frame, and the death angel would pass over their house, and they would be saved, and all those who were not covered with the blood would find themselves under God's wrath and die. And so they were doing this to, to celebrate and to remind themselves of what God had done for them to save them, to rescue them. And so he draws on all this, all this imagery, all, this, all these things that they would have been completely aware of, the Corinthians, about the feast and the sacrificial system and the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. And so Paul uses the example of leaven to emphasize this. He says, he used it to show the... the corrupting and contagious nature of sin in the church. It says, cleanse out the leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are leaven. As he says in verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So allowing a little bit in there, allowing just a little bit, is going to overtake the whole thing. I don't know if there's any uh, young children, girls in here. I see Lottie over here. I, I, don't, I don't know if I see any others. But Lottie, can I ask you a question? Do you like to play with glitter? You can answer truthfully. You like glitter? Yeah. You know, I, kids love glitter. Kids love glitter. It, and, uh, and so I, I love that kids love glitter. Personally, hate glitter. One of Satan's devices. Because um, here's the thing. When you give kids glitter, it never stays contained. It never stays on the piece of paper. You find it everywhere in your hair in your carpet, in your clothes, everywhere. I've never seen glitter stay right here. It's always everywhere, right? It, it, it gets everywhere. I'm, I'm grateful that kids, Lottie, I'm, I'm glad that you lo love glitter. I love pictures of glitter and glitter on the, on the things. But glitter in and of itself is just, whew, 
man. But just as glitter just gets everywhere, that you cannot keep it contained, you cannot keep it encapsulated into one place, is that what, that's what Paul is reminding us here, individually and corporately, is that you and me, we think that we have the power to contain sin corporately and individually, and it will overtake us every time if we do not put it to death, if we do not remove it from us individually and corporately. It is like a little leaven that will overtake the whole lump, what Paul's saying. And so it gets everywhere. Send us. Sin will, will infuse itself in everything that we have here. Whatever ministry we have, whatever, whatever person that we have in our congregation, if we allow sin to go unaddressed, egregious, heinous sin, it will affect everything about the church. It will affect our witness. It will affect our holiness. It will affect every single ministry from the pulpit to the chair. That's what sin does. It is contagious and it has a contaminating effect on it. But he says this, just as the leaven goes through a whole lump, he tells him, cleanse it out. He tells him why. He gives him motivation why. And this is such a beautiful line that Paul brings in here, their motivation. For Christ is the Passover, our Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover lamb who has sacrificed for us. His blood has covered us, cleansed us, has protected us, given us refuge from God's wrath. Just as Israel was saved by the blood of the Lamb that was smeared across the doorframe, so too are we, that we are saved, atoned for, protected, guarded, and given refuge in the blood of our Savior, our Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ. And this is why you should cleanse yourself of leaven. This is why you should remove your sin, the sin from individually and from corporately from your midst. It's because Christ is our Passover Lamb who has redeemed us, reconciled us, and atoned for our sins through His own blood. This is why you must cleanse out sin from your life, individually and corporately. Because Christ is our Passover lamb. And so, because of this, because he is our Passover lamb, continue to celebrate the festival, he says in verse 8, not with the old leaven, but which is the leaven of malice and evil. He says, put that stuff, that stuff out. That old leaven, put that out. Throw it out. That's what he characterizes as sin, malice, and evil. Get rid of that stuff in you. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, you are a new lump. You have been redeemed in Christ. You have been made a new creation, a new lump. I don't know if you like to be called a new lump, a new lump in Christ. I feel like a new lump in Christ sometimes. But we as a body, individually, we are made into a new lump, and therefore we should not have any leavened among us because we are a new lump in Christ. And that. What should be characteristic about the new unleavened lump is that there should be no sin, unrighteousness, patterns of it in our own lives, individually and corporately. Is that we are called to live holy by ridding ourselves of sin and walking in righteousness because our salvation has been provided and received in Christ Jesus. And so, hopefully what we've gotten from these couple of verses, 6 through 8, is this, is that, look, Church discipline is not just for the good of the sinner, it's for the good of the congregation because it protects our holiness. Because we have to believe, we have to have a strong doctrine of sin. Is that if you think sin is very fragile and weak and is not on the prowl, be warned 
believer. It will eat you alive if you are not on guard against it. Sin is contagious and contaminating. Do not play or toy around it. You may think that you are powerful. You may think that your sin is, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. You know, I can, I can control that. You know, I know it's there. But sin will eat you alive if you do not put it to death. It will. Do not think that you are that powerful to fight sin and to think that you can allow it to exist in your life in any form and that it will not grow. It festers. It grows. It multiplies. It mutates on you. Sin is powerful and it's contagious. And so sin, it should not be contagious in our congregation. But it can be. And that's, that's what Paul's getting at here. Is if you allow sin, if you allow it to go unaddressed, heinous, egregious sin, it will be contagious within your body, within the body of Christ. So you might think, well, yeah, that's, hey, look, uh, yeah, I sit over here on the left side of the congregation. Yeah, I know that person over there, they got a huge sin problem that they, they're not dealing with, nobody's dealing with. But they sit way over there. It won't get to me. It won't, it won't affect me over there. Or you might be thinking over there, yeah, I know that person over there, I know what they're dealing with, but I'm glad I sit about four rows away from them because their sin won't get to me. Look, sin is powerful, and it will spread across this entire body in the matter of a second. If you do not, if we, corporately, individually, do not put it to death, it is contagious. So sin should not be contagious in our congregation, but you know what should be? Holiness should be. Holiness should be contagious here. Is that just as Jesus' holiness was contagious, do you remember that? Is that he encountered people who were uh, deemed unclean, right? And what did he do? He touched them, and he made them what? Clean. He made them holy. So Jesus' holiness is contagious, and so should the churches be. Is that as we live lives of holiness and righteousness here within Crosspoint, is that that is hoping, we pray, provoking other people in the congregation to live holy and righteous lives. As I see this person over here living righteously, living holy, is that say, man, I want to I live that way. I want to act that way. I want to interact with people that way. I want to live like that. And then this person starts doing it, and this person starts doing it, and then it becomes a domino effect. We do not want sin to be contagious here at Crosspoint. We want holiness to be contagious. So let us live lives of holiness so that we can provoke one another to holiness and righteousness in our own congregation. Let's allow holiness to be contagious. And we do this all out of this, this reason, because Jesus has died for our sins. He has cleansed us and redeemed us. And this should motivate us. So, so why should we enact church discipline? Why should we practice this? Because Jesus is our Passover lamb and he has died to make himself a holy people. And this is one of the ways in which we keep and guard our holiness in Christ Jesus. This is it. The death of Christ should motivate our personal holiness and our corporate holiness. And so, when we enact church discipline, when we do remove somebody out of the congregation, you may ask the question, where, where do we go from there? How do we interact with them and with unbelievers in general? And that's the, that's the next question that Paul is going to address in the last couple of verses in 9 through 13. 9 through 13 is point number three, that he's going to correct a misunderstanding. Is that ultimately, he wants the church to know is that it's your responsibility to enact church discipline, to discipline unrepentant sinners who claim to be in Christ. I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago, and they were interviewing an author of a, a very interesting book called The Stranger in the Woods. 
and uh, it's about uh, America's last hermit. And uh, so uh, a hermit, his name, I believe his name is Christopher Knight, I'm trying to remember now, is that he lived in the woods for 27 years. So one day he was just tired of living in society and he drove his car into the woods and then he walked and he lived there for 27 years without human contact until he was caught. He was stealing from people's homes to you know, feed himself and get necessities and he was arrested. But he lived in the woods for 27 years, isolated from all human contact, didn't talk to a person. And uh, a, a very, um, I don't know, some, some of you might be like, that sounds actually pretty uh, appealing, right? To live by myself. For <laughs> Stacy Green's pointing at Lee Green over there in the back. To, to live for 27 years in isolation from human contact. And so we all kind of have this, um, this inclination for isolation sometimes, right? To, to just get away from people, to get away from, you know, get quiet and things like that. Maybe not for 27 years, but just for a couple, maybe a couple hours. And this isolation or isolationist approach seems to be the problem that, that Paul is addressing here in these last couple of verses. It seems that from Paul, uh, Paul's teaching, the Corinthians have said, okay, here's what we're going to do. If that's Paul's teaching in church discipline, we're to remove people, then we're just going to, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to isolate from every single person. We're not going to associate with anybody. Nobody. And so this is what Paul is addressing here in these last couple of verses, is this isolationist approach to what he, is, what he has given them in his teaching. And so Paul needs to clear this up. He says, you know, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world. And so what Paul is saying here is that He's not saying disassociate yourself with unbelievers. It's not what he's saying. Because he makes the argument, if you had to do that, you know what happened? You'd have to take yourself out of the entire world. It's not possible, right? But what he's saying, what Paul is saying, is that I'm not meeting the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world completely. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of what? Brother. Of brother, that's meaning that somebody who names the name of Christ, somebody who um, who uh, claims to be a follower of Jesus, to following Jesus, to living in accordance with His gospel and with His commands, he's saying, don't associate with those people who have been confronted about their sin, who have been removed by church discipline, who are continuing to live in their unrepentant sin, and who continue to call themselves a brother in Christ. He says, don't associate with those. That's who I'm talking about. Those who have been confronted with their sin, disciplined by the church, and are continuing to practice their sin with, with no regard for what has happened. Paul says, he goes even further to say, do not even eat with such a one. Because eating, at least in Paul's time, was a way in which saying that everything's okay. It was a kind of a friendship, a, a, a relationship. You said, oh, yeah, man, it's kind of nonchalant. We're just hanging out, having fun. He says not to even eat with them. And, and what it seems to be is the, the thing that he's addressing here is that when you do remove somebody from your congregation, they, you, they've been confronted with their sin. They're still unrepentant, still living, living uh, in their unrepentant sin, still bearing the name of Christ, is that we don't associate with them in ways that communicate, 
hey, you know what? That was just a big misunderstanding. You know what? You're good. Everything's okay. It's no big deal what you did. You know, no, no, no. How you're living is fine. Keep going on. Is that what Paul's saying is that when we interact with these people who have been disciplined by the church, our relationship with, with them has to change. We cannot communicate to them that, that what happened, them being disciplined, is no big deal. We can't live with them and saying, you know what? It's, it's just a big misunderstanding. You know, we're good. You're, you're, keep living how you live. Uh, that's fine. No, he's saying that we have to be very upfront, And that our interactions with these people who have been disciplined have to communicate and say, your sin is serious. And how you're living is not okay. To live in unrepentance is not okay. And if you name the name of Christ as brother, then I'm calling you to repent. Turn away from your sin. Is that our relationships must change with people who have been disciplined and still continue to live in unrepentant sin and call themselves Christians. We can't make it seem like that everything is hunky-dory with them and that everything's going to go along as usual. It can't. Because their unrepentance is not okay. They're actually in a very dangerous place. And so we've been given this responsibility by God's Spirit. Paul says in verse 12, For what have I do to judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Is that He's saying you have a responsibility. You have a jurisdiction here. Is that you judge. We are being given this responsibility to judge one another. To assess one another's life. And that you're not to, your, your jurisdiction is not over unbelievers. You shouldn't be surprised when unbelievers do unbelieving things, when they sin. But we should be surprised, and it should catch us off guard, when people who name the name of Christ, who say they are a Christian, who say they are a follower of Jesus, live in contrast and contradiction to the gospel. It should catch us off guard. And that is our jurisdiction as the church, is to judge one another and ultimately church. And this is the heaviness of the sermon. God is going to hold us accountable. God is going to hold us accountable for what we do. And so Paul says, purge the evil from your midst, quoting Deuteronomy 17. And that the same instructions were given to Israel that they were to purge the evil from their midst because they were a people who were called by God saved by God and we're to live for God in holiness and so they were to remove sin from their midst I want to ask you this to put it in perspective for you if we are even thinking about allowing unrepentant egregious heinous sin to exist in our midst to tolerate it I want to ask you something in in an analogy how much cancer would you knowingly knowingly allow to exist in your physical body before you went to a doctor? Let me ask you that again. How much cancer, how much would you knowingly allow to exist in your body before you went to a doctor? And I would assume that we would all say, I would go immediately and get it checked out and get it taken care of and take action right then body of Christ, cross point. I say we take the same direction and approach when it comes to sin in our body, in our fellowship. 
And so we must take action and not be apathetic towards sin. Now, let me, I want to address a couple things, because you may have a couple of questions on this, and I am welcome to answer anything after the sermon. This is a hard topic to talk about. It's not a fun one. It's not one that I'm, I, I expect anybody to leave this, you know, this room with, whoo, praise the Lord, man, man, my faith has been strengthened. I'm excited, rejoice in the Lord always, church discipline. This is just truth, and truth is sometimes sobering. And so here's a question that I think we need to think through is what sin warrants discipline? What sin warrants discipline? Because maybe you're in here and say, don't we all sin? So shouldn't we all be excommunicated? Shouldn't we all be removed? We're we're all sinners. Well, no. (laughs) Praise the Lord, right? Is that I've been saying over and over again in this sermon, egregious, heinous, public, overt sin, that's important. Because there is type, a kind of sin, what Paul says here. And I want to read a a rather long quote to you, and just stay with me, because I think Tom Schreiner really sums it up well. What sin do you discipline? Tom Schreiner says it well. Paul focuses, however, on sins that are publicly expressed and blatant. Blatant. For instance, coveting, which is listed here, does not warrant public censure unless it expresses itself in extortion, embezzlement, or theft. In the same way, all believers struggle with lust. Believers who are fighting against lust are not to be excommunicated. When someone is struggling and fighting against sin, we help one another instead of excluding the one struggling from the church. But when lust expresses itself in sexual immorality and the offender does not repent of his sin, then discipline is necessary. Do you see the distinction there? That there is sin, and if allowed to exist and grow, it can grow into worse, more egregious sin. And that if unrepented of when confronted, then that requires discipline. And so, this teaching is hard. I know, Cross Point. This teaching is hard for me. It's heavy. But two questions ring in my mind after reading this text. Is that if we're told to practice church discipline here at Cross Point by 1 Corinthians 5, then we have to answer these two questions. Is God's word authoritative? Does, that, does it have authority over our lives? You can answer. If so, are we going to obey it? If so, if it is authoritative, as we've all said yes, are we going to obey it? That is the question. That is the question. And so we practice church discipline out of a desire to obey the Scriptures, to protect the church's holiness and witness. And we practice it out of love to see the unrepentant sinner repent and be restored back to the body of Christ. Is that in church discipline, what our text has shown this morning In church discipline, it says two things. It says, we take sin seriously and that we will act in towards in removing it. But it also says another thing. It says, in church discipline, we take sin seriously, but we also, we take grace and restoration seriously as well. Is that we take sin seriously and that we want to remove it because it will affect our witness and our holiness. And we want to see the unrepentant sinner repent and come to Jesus. But, 
if they do repent and want to be restored, then we have open arms to receive them back with grace and love and fellowship. And isn't this the two truths that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we hear God takes sin seriously. Takes sin so seriously that it cannot be in his presence at all. The gospel says God takes sin seriously. So seriously, in fact, that he must punish sin. He must punish it. And that we are all sinners worthy of being estranged, being alienated from God. But the gospel also says this, is that when we repent of our sin, we come to knowledge of our error, and we seek God's fellowship through Christ Jesus, we seek His grace, we seek His forgiveness, we seek restoration, we seek reconciliation, we will find it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That church discipline represents two great truths of the gospel. God takes sin seriously, but He also offers grace to repentant sinners. I pray this morning for you. As the band comes back up this morning, I pray that you have seen in this study of 1 Corinthians 5, as we've opened up this text, that the gospel is beautiful and that church discipline is, it is a model, a representation, a picture of the gospel. It's that God is a holy God who takes sin seriously. Therefore, his body, his church should take sin seriously in our individual lives and corporately. And just as God makes activity and is active towards sin, so should the church be when it has it in its own life. But God, when, as He is just towards sin, He is also gracious and steadfast, loving and kind. And that He meets sinners who repent and turn away from their sin and seek grace and restoration in Jesus Christ, who has died as their Passover lamb, been raised from the dead, and gives forgiveness and grace freely to all those who come to Him. Let me pray for us. God, what a heavy text. But I pray that we would be obedient, God, as Your Word is our authority. And as You model so perfectly for us that sin is serious, but grace is still offered. And that God, I pray that Cross Point Baptist Church would be obedient to the Scriptures. That we would model the Gospel in everything that we do, even church discipline. God, I pray that we would be able to sing because Christ is our Passover Lamb who has saved us and enabled us to live holy lives. And it's in His precious name we pray.